chapter thirty seven part two of supplements to the third book from the world as will and idea volume three by arthur schopenhauer translated by r b haldane and j kemp this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter thirty seven on the aesthetics of poetry part two the distinction so often discussed in our own day between classic and romantic poetry seems to me ultimately to depend upon the fact that the former knows no other motives than those which are purely human actual and natural the latter on the other hand also treats artificial conventional and imaginary motives as efficient to such belong the motives which spring from the christian mythus also from the chivalrous overstrained fantastical law of honour further from the absurd and ludicrous germano-christian veneration of women and lastly from doting and mooning hyperphysical amorousness but even in the best poets of the romantic class for example in calderon we can see to what ridiculous distortions of human relations and human nature these motives lead not to speak of the autos i merely refer to such pieces as no siempre el peor es cierto the worst is not always certain and el postrero duelo en españa the last duel in spain and similar comedies en capa y espada with the elements mentioned there is here further associated the scholastic subtlety so often appearing in the conversation which at that time belonged to the mental culture of the higher classes how decidedly advantageous on the contrary is the position of the poetry of the ancients which always remains true to nature and the result is that classical poetry has an unconditional romantic poetry only a conditional truth and correctness analogous to greek and gothic architecture yet on the other hand we must remark here that all dramatic or narrative poems which transfer their scene to ancient greece or rome lose by this from the fact that our knowledge of antiquity especially in what concerns the details of life is insufficient fragmentary and not drawn from perception this obliges the poet to avoid much and to content himself with generalities whereby he becomes abstract and his work loses that concreteness and individualization which is throughout essential to poetry it is this which gives all such works the peculiar appearance of emptiness and tediousness only shakespeare's works of this kind are free from it because without hesitation he has presented under the names of greeks and romans englishmen of his own time it has been objected to many masterpieces of lyrical poetry especially some odes of horace see for example the second of the third book and several of goethe's songs for example the shepherd's lament that they lack proper connection and are full of gaps in the thought but here the logical connection is intentionally neglected in order that the unity of the fundamental sensation and mood may take its place which comes out more clearly just by the fact that it passes like a thread through the separate pearls and brings about the quick changes of the objects of contemplation in the same way as in music the transition from one key to another is brought about by the chord of the seventh through which the still sounding fundamental note becomes the dominant of the new key 
most distinctly even exaggeratedly the quality here described is found in the canzone of petrarch which begins my non vo piu cantar com io soleva accordingly as in the lyrical poem the subjective element predominates so in the drama on the contrary the objective element is alone and exclusively present between the two epic poetry in all its forms and modifications from the narrative romance to the epos proper has a broad middle path for although in the main it is objective yet it contains a subjective element appearing now more and now less which finds its expression in the tone in the form of the delivery and also in scattered reflections we do not so entirely lose sight of the poet as in the drama the end of the drama in general is to show us in an example what is the nature and existence of man the sad or the bright side of these can be turned to us in it or their transitions into each other but the expression nature and existence of man already contains the germ of the controversy whether the nature that is the character or the existence that is the fate the adventures the action is the principal thing moreover the two have grown so firmly together that although they can certainly be separated in conception they cannot be separated in the representation of them for only the circumstances the fate the events make the character manifest its nature and only from the character does the action arise from which the events proceed certainly in the representation the one or the other may be made more prominent and in this respect the piece which centres in the characters and the piece which centres in the plot are the two extremes the common end of the drama and the epic to exhibit in significant characters placed in significant situations the extraordinary actions brought about by both will be most completely attained by the poet if he first introduces the characters to us in a state of peace in which merely their general colour becomes visible and allows a motive to enter which produces an action out of which a new and stronger motive arises which again calls forth a more significant action which in its turn begets new and even stronger motives whereby then in the time suitable to the form of the poem the most passionate excitement takes the place of the original piece and in this now the important actions occur in which the qualities of the characters which have hitherto slumbered are brought clearly to light together with the course of the world great poets transform themselves into each of the persons to be represented and speak out of each of them like ventriloquists now out of the hero and immediately afterwards out of the young and innocent maiden with equal truth and naturalness so shakespeare and goethe poets of the second rank transform the principal person to be represented into themselves this is what byron does and then the other persons often remain lifeless as is the case even with the principal persons in the works of mediocre poets our pleasure in tragedy belongs not to the sense of the beautiful but to that of the sublime nay it is the highest grade of this feeling for as at the sight of the sublime in nature we turn away from the interests of the will in order to be purely perceptive so in the tragic catastrophe we turn away even from the will to live in tragedy the terrible side of life is presented to us the wail of humanity the reign of chance and error the fall of the just the triumph of the wicked thus the aspect of the world which directly strives against our will is brought before our eyes 
at this sight we feel ourselves challenged to turn away our will from life no longer to will it or to love it but just in this way we become conscious that then there still remains something over to us which we absolutely cannot know positively but only negatively as that which does not will life as the chord of the seventh demands the fundamental chord as the colour red demands green and even produces it in the eye so every tragedy demands an entirely different kind of existence another world the knowledge which can only be given us indirectly just as here by such a demand in the moment of the tragic catastrophe the conviction becomes more distinct to us than ever that life is a bad dream from which we have to awake so far the effect of the tragedy is analogous to that of the dynamical sublime for like this it lifts us above the will and its interests and puts us in such a mood that we find pleasure in the sight of what tends directly against it what gives to all tragedy in whatever form it may appear the peculiar tendency towards the sublime is the awakening of the knowledge that the world life can afford us no true pleasure and consequently is not worthy of our attachment in this consists the tragic spirit it therefore leads to resignation i admit that in ancient tragedy the spirit of resignation seldom appears and is expressed directly oedipus colonus certainly dies resigned and willing yet he is comforted by the revenge on his country iphigenia at aulis is very willing to die yet it is the thought of the welfare of greece that comforts her and occasions the change of her mind on account of which she willingly accepts the death which at first she sought to avoid by any means cassandra in the agamemnon of the great aeschylus dies willingly archeto vias thirteen o six but she also is comforted by the thought of revenge hercules in the trachiniae submits to necessity and dies composed but not resigned so also the hippolytus of euripides in whose case it surprises us that artemis who appears to comfort him promises him temples and fame but never points him to an existence beyond life and leaves him in death as all gods forsake the dying in christianity they come to him and so also in brahmanism and buddhism although in the latter the gods are really exotic thus hippolytus like almost all the tragic heroes of the ancients shows submission to inevitable fate and the inflexible will of the gods but no surrender of the will to live itself as the stoic equanimity is fundamentally distinguished from christian resignation by the fact that it teaches only patient endurance and composed expectation of unalterably necessary evil while christianity teaches renunciation surrender of the will so also the tragic heroes of the ancients show resolute subjection under the unavoidable blows of fate while christian tragedy on the contrary shows the surrender of the whole will to live joyful forsaking of the world in the consciousness of its worthlessness and vanity but i am also entirely of opinion that modern tragedy stands higher than that of the ancients shakespeare is much greater than sophocles in comparison with goethe's iphigenia one might find that of euripides almost crude and vulgar the bacchae of euripides is a revolting composition in favour of the heathen priests many ancient pieces have no tragic tendency at all like the alcestis and iphigenia in tauris of euripides some have disagreeable or even disgusting motives like the antigone in philocteles 
almost all show the human race under the fearful rule of chance and error but not the resignation which is occasioned by it and delivers from it all because the ancients had not yet attained to the summit and goal of tragedy or indeed of the view of life itself although then the ancients displayed little of the spirit of resignation the turning away of the will from life in their tragic heroes themselves as their frame of mind yet the peculiar tendency and effect of tragedy remains the awakening of that spirit in the beholder the calling up of that frame of mind even though only temporarily the horrors upon the stage hold up to him the bitterness and worthlessness of life thus the vanity of all its struggle the effect of this impression must be that he becomes conscious if only in obscure feeling that it is better to tear his heart free from life to turn his will from it to love not the world nor life whereby then in his deepest soul the consciousness is aroused that for another kind of willing there must also be another existence for if this were not so then the tendency of tragedy would not be this rising above all the ends and good things of life this turning away from it and its seductions and the turning towards another kind of existence which already lies in this although an existence which is for us quite inconceivable how would it then in general be possible that the exhibition of the most terrible side of life brought before our eyes in the most glaring light could act upon us beneficently and afford us a lofty satisfaction fear and sympathy in the excitement of which aristotle places the ultimate end of tragedy certainly do not in themselves belong to the agreeable sensations therefore they cannot be the end but only the means thus the summons to turn away the will from life remains the true tendency of tragedy the ultimate end of the intentional exhibition of the suffering of humanity and is so accordingly even where this resigned exaltation of the mind is not shown in the hero himself but is merely excited in the spectator by the sight of great unmerited nay even merited suffering many of the moderns also are like the ancients satisfied with throwing the spectator into the mood which has been described by the objective representation of human misfortune as a whole while others exhibit this through the change of the frame of mind of the hero himself effected by suffering the former give as it were only the premises and leave the conclusion to the spectator while the latter give the conclusion or the moral of the fable also as the change of the frame of mind of the hero and even also as reflection in the mouth of the chorus as for example schiller in the bride of messina life is not the highest good let me remark here that the genuine tragic effect of the catastrophe thus the resignation and exaltation of the mind of the hero which is brought about by it seldom appears so purely motived and so distinctly expressed as in the opera of norma where it comes in in the duet quacori tradisti qual cor pedesti in which the change of the will is distinctly indicated by the quietness which is suddenly introduced into the music in general this piece regarded apart altogether from its excellent music and also from the diction which can only be that of a libretto and considered only according to its motives and its inner economy is a highly perfect tragedy a true pattern of tragic disposition of the motives tragic progress of the action and tragic development together with the effect of these upon the frame of mind of the hero raising it above the world 
and which is then also communicated to the spectator indeed the effect attained here is the less delusive and the more indicative of the true nature of tragedy that no christians nor even christian ideas appear in it the neglect of the unity of time and place with which the moderns are so often reproached is only a fault when it goes so far that it destroys the unity of the action for then there only remains the unity of the principal character as for example in shakespeare's henry the eighth but even the unity of the action does not need to go so far that the same thing is spoken of throughout as in the french tragedies which in general observe this so strictly that the course of the drama is like a geometrical line without breadth there it is constantly a case of only get on pensez à votre affaire and the thing is expedited and hurried on in a thoroughly business fashion and no one detains himself with irrelevances which do not belong to it or looks to the right or the left the shakespearean tragedy on the other hand is like a line which has also breadth it takes time expatiatur speeches and even whole scenes occur which do not advance the action indeed do not properly concern it by which however we get to know the characters or their circumstances more fully and then understand the action also more thoroughly this certainly remains the principal thing yet not so exclusively that we forget that in the last instance what is aimed at is the representation of human nature and existence generally the dramatic or epic poet ought to know that he is fate and should therefore be inexorable as it is also that he is the mirror of the human race and should therefore represent very many bad and sometimes profligate characters and also many fools buffoons and eccentric persons then also now and again a reasonable a prudent and honest or a good man and only as the rarest exception a truly magnanimous man in the whole of homer there is in my opinion no really magnanimous character presented although many good and honest in the whole of shakespeare there may be perhaps a couple of noble though by no means transcendently noble characters to be found perhaps cordelia coriolanus hardly more on the other hand his works swarm with the species indicated above but Iflon's and Kotzebue's pieces have many magnanimous characters, while Godoni has done as I recommended above, whereby he shows that he stands higher. On the other hand, Schiller's Mina von Barnhelm labors under too much and too universal magnanimity. But so much magnanimity as the one Marquiposa displays is not to be found in the whole of Goethe's works together. There is, however, a small German piece called Duty for Duty's Sake, a title which sounds as if it had been taken from the critique of practical reason which has only three characters and yet all the three are of most transcendent magnanimity the greeks have taken for their heroes only royal persons and so also for the most part have the moderns certainly not because the rank gives more worth to him who is acting or suffering and since the whole thing is just to set human passions in play the relative value of the objects by which this happens is indifferent and peasant huts achieve as much as kingdoms moreover civic tragedy is by no means to be unconditionally rejected persons of great power and consideration are yet the best adapted for tragedy on this account that the misfortune in which we ought to recognize the fate of humanity must have a sufficient magnitude to appear terrible to the spectator whoever he may be euripides himself says feu feu ta megala megala kai paske kaka 
now the circumstances which plunge a citizen family into want and despair are in the eyes of the great or rich for the most part very insignificant and capable of being removed by human assistance nay sometimes even by a trifle such spectators therefore cannot be tragically affected by them on the other hand the misfortunes of the great and powerful are unconditionally terrible and also accessible to no help from without for kings must help themselves by their own power or fall to this we have to add that the fall is greatest from a height accordingly persons of the rank of citizens lack height to fall from if now we have found the tendency and ultimate intention of tragedy to be a turning to resignation to the denial of the will to live we shall easily recognize in its opposite comedy the incitement to the continued assertion of the will it is true the comedy like every representation of human life without exception must bring before our eyes suffering and adversity but it presents it to us as passing resolving itself into joy in general mingled with success victory and hopes which in the end preponderate moreover it brings out the inexhaustible material for laughter of which life and even its adversities themselves are filled and which under all circumstances ought to keep us in a good humour thus it declares in the result that life as a whole is thoroughly good and especially is always amusing certainly it must hasten to drop the curtain at the moment of joy so that we may not see what comes after while the tragedy as a rule so ends that nothing can come after and moreover if once we contemplate this burlesque side of life somewhat seriously as it shows itself in the naive utterances and gestures which trifling embarrassment personal fear momentary anger secret envy and many similar emotions force upon the forms of the real life that mirrors itself here forms which deviate considerably from the type of beauty then from this side also thus in an unexpected manner the reflective spectator may become convinced that the existence and action of such beings cannot itself be an end that on the contrary they can only have attained to existence by an error and that what so exhibits itself is something which had better not be end of chapter thirty seven recording by expatriate in bangor maine